0: Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. I'm here with a good friend, Spencer Wright. Spencer, glad to have you on once again. I think this is maybe your fourth or fifth time with you and I having a conversation. Um, we're going to go into morality, and I'll just give the listeners a little bit of a backdrop. Uh, recently, I started a series of discussions with Jacob Hansen, who is an intelligent, articulate, uh, believing member of the LDS Church. We are just taking it session by session, agreeing to a topic, and then uh, that Friday going live and having the conversation. The very first session was on morality and essentially around how one who doesn't believe in God forms morality and how one who trusts in the Judeo-Christian movement frames morality and whether one morality is uh, trustable over another or more effective over another. And then our second session, we talked about faith crises, but it seemed like half the conversation came back to morality. And I felt like session one was really good. And folks, if you want to check that out, you can go to our YouTube channel, uh, Mormon Discussion Incorporated. Look at the recent videos, uh, the live videos, and you'll see those two discussions with Jacob. The first discussion, I was really happy with how both sides presented their points of view. When I got into the second one and it came back to morality and talking about faith crises, there, was, there were several moments where I felt sort of uh, out of my own out of, out of the, my own uh, natural place where I kind of thrive talking about this stuff. And uh, Spencer Wright, uh, a friend of mine here on the show, reached out to me uh, three or four days ago and said, "Hey, Bill, I've got some thoughts and this is really uh, Spencer's wheelhouse. I've got some thoughts on the data that uh, Jacob presented. There were things that Jacob got right that we don't often give credit to. There are things that uh, I think Jacob maybe could have framed better or, or maybe he was not aware of certain perspectives. And I wanted to give Spencer a chance to uh, talk about all of that. And so Spencer, I'll turn the time over to you. Um, first start us off by giving us a brief intro. About who you are and what makes you qualified to talk about uh, these kinds of ideas, and, and then uh, let's have you jump into where you want to start from there.
1: Yeah. Um, so I I've just basically been studying philosophy for a very long time. So I so I am just very familiar with a lot of these these concepts and ideas. And so um, and and I think what kind of prompted me, what sparked me, was that. Uh, to to discuss these things was that uh, Jacob is raising some really important issues that I think people don't, they don't really think about uh, a lot. But more importantly, I think it's kind of scary. I think it's a little bit like the, the monster under the bed where you're a little afraid to have those kinds of conversations about what what's actually the support of your of your beliefs and and uh, values and whatnot and so I so I want to make sure that the whole the the whole time that we're going through this that we're making sure that we give due credit to where Jacob was getting things right and and uh, make sure that those questions are really important and then it's also going to help kind of explain why what the answers that I'm giving here are actually so important it's not just be a good person like it, it's it's what we're what we're talking about here is something that's actually addressing the monster under the bed as opposed to just kind of the uh, a surface sort of uh, take of uh not only morality but how do we even know what is real what is truth that kind of thing and so there are some some important concepts that we're going to get here that are a little bit scary because once you start kind of del- delving under there it feels kind of like the the sand is shifting beneath your feet a bit uh but when we're all done with this, we can actually see that there's actually a much more firm footing for um, uh, for f- the philosophical position of somebody who doesn't uh, you know, believe in a God or whatever the case is, since that was kind of the whole point of the argument or the discussion was. Uh, to say you either have to believe in a God or you are an atheist. And those are the only, those are the main two points that you're starting from in order to arrive at your moral truths and your, and your true, you know, truth truths.
0: And I just want to add, too, uh, Jacob and I both agreed on the beginning of this to frame these not as debates. It's not about proving someone else is wrong per se, but that there should be a, a good faith effort to try to understand the other person's point of view. And and I also would say that to try to, you know, if either one of us holds a faulty view, whether it's by the conversation that we're having with each other, or by the research and conversations with you, for instance, that that dialogue uh, nudges us into, that we ought to be open to changing our perspectives. I, I certainly am. I if you present something today that counters, and you've already done that, as you shared with me a few thoughts of what this conversation would entail, there were places where I go like, oh, like I worded it that way and you're right, like that doesn't really represent how I feel about this. And I had to kind of change my rhetoric. Um, I would suggest that folks who are delving into those conversations with Jacob, who are following along and listening to me and Spencer have this one, that we not make these conversations about who wins and who loses, rather that we ought to value truth, we ought to value rational thinking, we ought to value getting to the bottom of what is the best explanation uh, for what we have in front of us. And if I looked really bad in session number two, or really good in session number one, I could care less. Uh, I'm really grateful that these conversations are taking place. And I'm hoping that they are a, a springboard or a jumping board um, which this conversation is here with you, a jumping board into other areas where we can all refine the way we word these things and refine our logic so that um, so that we represent reality as close to what it is
1: as possible. Awesome. All right, so take uh, us away. Jump, jump to the the first slide. Let's do it. Okay, so the, this is basically the representation of kind of the the problem. That I think that Jacob was trying to to, to get at that he's he's trying that he's trying to say we need to look under the bed and 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 check for monsters sort of thing and so he kept referring to this as the philosophical legs of someone's belief system. If you say uh, I, I have a certain value, I I, I believe in uh, you know. Going in doing good community service work or whatever the case is. And then you say, okay, well, then what is the basis of that value system? And then you say, well, I just like, I feel like being a good person. I feel like doing good. Well, the the, the problem is, and this is this is the, this is where Jacob is absolutely right. And this is actually what prompted me to want to come on and chat about this, is that essentially if you keep referring to some other value uh, to in order to support your values, you're live your your confining your discussion completely to the contents of the house, as opposed to what is actually supporting the house. And so what we're, what we're gonna go through here, instead of, instead of looking at it just from the values to say, uh, I have a value and this value can be based by this value and this value, we're trying to get underneath that and say, what is the supporting, what, what actually drives the value in the first place? Um, and, that, and that becomes the legs, the supporting basis of the philosophy.
0: Yeah. So for instance, in the conversation with Jacob, um, I would suggest that my values were to be fair to people, to create collaboration and reciprocity, uh, to to have folks uh, essentially being kind to each other and to help folks flourish, which is actually what Jacob added trying to steal man me. And I think he did a great job on that point that I do. I want to see human beings flourish and that systems not take advantage of people. And as Jacob kept pushing on where I get that from, I was, I was agreeing with him that on some level it's subjective in that every human being, even good human beings, might disagree on morality. Um, and And yet, as you're pointing out, we need to get to why we human beings, most of us, value being fair and kind and wanting people to do good things to each other so that we all flourish we need to get to that underlying structure.
1: Yeah, and, and this, I'm kind of jumping ahead just a little bit. We'll come back to this in, in another slide, but there's, there's another aspect to this too, which is I'm, tr- I'm trying, you know, the, the reason why someone might even ask this question is because we're concerned about, you know, if, uh, and in fact, I have lots of uh, theistic friends who will essentially say, uh, well, I'm, I'm concerned that when people leave religion that they no, no longer have a sort of a foundation of, of for of for values. I, I don't actually think that this concern is uh, is founded. Because the, the, some of the most moral people I know are atheists and and you know not non-believers of, of anything. Uh, but there is still that question of, well, where did those guys get their values from? Because I don't know the, 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 what's gonna to happen if I wake up tomorrow and I feel differently? I feel like I don't have to help people. I don't have to be a good person, you know whatever what is what does good even mean in the first place? So there is some value to asking this question to say, what is the basis if you if you get rid of god if god was your basis of, of goodness and you get rid of god then where does you, where do your values come from it's it's a it, fair question
0: and it's important too because if we were to fast forward in time if we don't have some sort of underlying structure that assures us that we're going to be good to each other generally again there's always going to be bad apples then then with no God, with no outer authority voice in the heavens declaring what is right and wrong, we could collectively as a society, based on the assumption that we don't have anything locking us in, we could slowly shift to a very different point of view where we don't value human life, for instance, uh, collectively. And and so I think you've hit it that this structure underneath really does need to be fleshed out.
1: Yeah. Uh, So let's jump to the next slide. Okay. So <clears throat> the, the, the term objectivity uh, came up quite a bit in the conversation. And so I just want to make sure that we understand what definition we're talking about here when we're going through uh, the, the, the concepts and make sure we understand what we mean by objectivity. The fir- first definition is kind of more like the, the concept of being objective in your viewpoint. Uh, being you know we would think about a judge who is uh, looking at the, you know both sides of the case and trying to make a decision. Uh, we think of that judge being objective because he is dispassionate, because he he doesn't have any skin in the game. He's not friends with one side versus the other side. And so that, that's that's a form of objectivity. But even we we know that judges are not completely dispassionate. Mm-hmm. They have their own biases. They have their own their own things. And so there's still even when we talk about that, it's still kind of like a well, we're not really talking about objectivity because. Uh, it's way better that the judge does not know the people personally, does not have skin in the game, doesn't have stock in the company that's, that, you know, that's there whatever. Uh, but that's, that's one possible definition of objectivity. Uh, right. Okay. The second definition is more kind of what we think of more kind of the standard definition of what we're thinking about. Uh, when we think about objectivity, we kind of start with the idea that we ourselves have a have a brain and there are thoughts and feelings and biases going on inside of our brain and then outside of us there is an objective world there is a world that is real and would continue existing even if our brain wasn't here to experience it and so The the problem is, once again, if we just start with those assumptions, if we start with the assumption that there is an objective world outside of us and that we have subjective brain you know, doing thinking and and thoughts inside of us, that itself is a belief that exists inside of the house. And so we still have to kind of do something to get underneath that to say, well, how can we be so certain that there actually is even just asking this question starts to make people feel a little bit uneasy. Because people don't really want to consider the possibility you know, that we're in the matrix, as it were, or that you solipsism, you're the only, uh, uh, you're the, actually the only brain that exists in the entire, there is no universe except for your brain, and you have invented, created an entire objective world, uh, the belief in an objective world outside of yourself. And so when Jacob says something like, I can trust my eyes, that statement is actually occurring from within the house. And so we need something, we need something more more uh, foundational to get down to, well, how can we be confident at, uh, or at least some level of confidence that there is actually an objective world outside of us? Okay? Okay. the third third definition is more like, an omnipotent view of the universe that we we absolutely know what is true and right and and the the basis of values because essentially we have god's view of uh and and this is i think kind of where a lot of theists sort of uh uh, maybe confuse themselves or deceive themselves is that they think that by receiving or they, they think, first of all, they're receiving some sort of revelation in the first place, that that revelation comes directly from God. They have received that truth into their brain and now they have God's view of reality, that they know objectively that the reality is a certain way. And that, and that's uh, but but that's kind of these uh, definition two and definition three are kind of where we're landing when we're talking about what do we mean by objectivity?
0: Yeah, and I don't want to. Oh, oh, go, go ahead. ahead, go ahead. I don't want to take you off into the weeds, but in the second definition, you're still placing emphasis that your that your perspective on some level. If you're if there's any disagreement between anybody, you're having to kind of go like, well, I am seeing the thing more accurately than you're seeing the thing. Um, And then in the, in the third one, we can, we can show that every religious system that tries to lay down God's law is constantly reforming it often at the pressure of the world. And so even having God be the author of it ends up with it, not being very dependable. Does that make sense? Like,
1: yes. In fact, the, the next yeah. the next couple of slides we're going to go through exactly that and exactly why that's a problem. So, so that we see that with each one of these uh, definitions of of objectivity, even if we were to take uh, definition three as true on you know on its face, uh, there is still a problem, which is that you have to somehow get that information into your brain. And so that's what we'll, we'll cover that in just a second. But each, the point is, is that each one of these has some sort of some subjective element to it that yeah. requires us to kind of say, I can't have 100 percent objective certitude, even if there is such a thing as objective certitude, yeah, because I'm right. a subjective being somehow yeah. somehow has to get into my brain. Uh, if We can jump to the next slide we can kind of see the problem. So this is a quote from a, a book of, about teaching uh uh, legal evidence, but that that's less important than what the quote itself is actually talking about. Uh, the, the point here is that it's essentially true of all information, all, all uh, uh, beliefs, all values, whatnot, they all go through the same uh, basic gates. So it says all evidence depends upon some inference. We have to infer things in order to come up with right. facts, with values, whatever the case is. Our brain functions by gathering sense impressions integrating those impressions into meaningful patterns and then drawing inferences from those patterns sometimes the process happens so quickly and intuitively the infer the inferences are hard to detect and so uh like i right now i'm looking at a computer and i and i can just say wow is that objective that i'm looking at a computer right now or is it that i that i receive a sense of something and then I look through the, the impressions, find meaningful patterns. I go, wait a second, it looks very similar to something else that I have seen that I call a computer. And then I draw the inference and then infer that what I'm looking at is a computer. But that all happens so quickly that uh, I didn't pause to think about, wait a second, that was merely a sense impression of something and then I didn't didn't my my brain did its magic on it and inferred what it is and then I just spit it back out that it's a computer.
0: That and the easy at. way to understand that I mean you put on a VR headset and you you can interact with what looks sort of like the world you're used to. You can see for instance a computer in a VR video game, and I've done that. I've got a VR headset and actually one of the games you are in an office and there is a computer there. But that's just code and graphics and it puts an image there. And if you recognize that in a way, your eyes are the VR headset, your eyes are taking in information and your brain is finding patterns and telling
1: you what it is that your eyes are perceiving. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And then we can, if we can jump to the next slide. So the, the two, two problems with this is number one, that process of, uh, the uh, sense perception and sub, uh, subjective interpretation of that sense perception could be occurring entirely inside of your brain. In fact, it does occur entirely inside of your brain a lot of times because, uh, like when you have the sensation of hunger, hunger itself did not originate outside of your body, it actually originated inside of your body. And so you sense that sense perception and then you interpret that as hunger. You that feeling says, Oh, I guess I'm hungry. Well, the, 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 the applying the label to it to say I'm hungry is an interpretation of that sensation. I suppose that's either they can right now or someday in the future, they could just stick some little you know note up to your brain and, and stimulate that part of your brain that tells you that you're hungry. I mean, they, they do this with diet supplement pills and whatnot, right? Where they can suppress that feeling. Uh, we, we could probably create that feeling without actually you being hungry. And so, yeah, I mean, take
0: an edible and have the munchies, and oh, uh, there you go, yeah, and not be hungry at all. And now you put ten pounds on in the last month.
1: Yes, exactly. So, yeah. so the entire thing could be happening in your brain. In fact, this is when we think about uh, like the religious revelation, the, the the feelings that come from you know spiritual experiences or whatnot. Uh, that entire thing could be occurring inside of your brain. But even if we were to take it as absolute truth that there is a God out there and that God is trying to communicate with you and he's trying to send you a message, it still has to go through that same sort of, I I perceive it and I interpret it and then I I come up with a label for it. I call it something. Uh, And and so, no, go ahead. I was going to say, and every time that happens, there's
0: also room for misinterpretation.
1: Yes. And that's the key right there. So, Mm -hmm. so like uh, Mormons teach that uh, written into the, into the heavens is the, is the value of not drinking coffee. Uh, And so, so it's, it's possible that Mormons have correctly interpreted what, however we arrive at correct interpretation, Mormons have arrived at the correct interpretation that, that God has decreed that coffee is bad and you're not supposed to drink coffee. You can't get a temple recommend without you drink, if you drink coffee. But evidently every other person on the planet who it is not a teetot- teetotaler or not a coffee totaler, teetotal doesn't actually mean tea. Right, but, right, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, but in any case, uh, They have evidently interpreted the heavens incorrectly. That's, that's what we must assume when we, if we were to assume that Mormons got it right, we have to assume that 99.999999% of the population has gotten it wrong. Um,
0: With the allowance that they, they just didn't encounter it. They didn't know any better. Well, but they're still behaving in a way that or, or understanding the world works in a way that's different than it actually works.
1: Yeah and so i mean most most every theist believes in theism in a sense that they have some sort of heaven access to the heavens and are reading the reading the the the, the decrees of the heavens and uh know that that's what god wants and so they're mm-hmm. reading they're reading the heavens and getting something different they're they're seeing the same Obviously, obviously the same sense impressions that Mormons that are getting and somehow are interpreting it differently. Uh, and it reminds me of one of my favorite uh, Ben Franklin quotes where he says, behold, the rain which descends from heaven upon our vineyards. There it enters into the roots of the vines to be changed into wine, a constant proof that God loves us and loves to see us happy. And so. Right. Ben Franklin is reading the heavens. He sees that rain and the rain turning into grapes and turning it into wine. He sees that as proof that not only does God not want us to drink uh, coffee, he does want us to drink coffee. He wants us to drink beer and wine and everything else as well. And so he's reading the heavens and just getting a totally different impression. Now, of course, Ben Franklin could be wrong, but then we have to kind of figure out, well, then what's the difference? Why is it that Mormons understand this idea of the uh, the, the word of wisdom in, you know, correctly and everybody else is reading the heavens incorrectly.
0: Yeah, totally. And you could, again, we can get into this later, but you could substitute things that Mormon, that the, that the Mormon religion knew for sure was true. Take that coffee picture with the, uh, the red circle and the red line through it, take that out and put in people of color are, uh, are less valiant in the premortal life and um, carry the curse of Cain or Ham, right? And all you have to do is watch that graphic there and notice that whatever God was giving, by the time it got into our brain or a church leader's brain, something was off, a misinterpretation happened, a misunderstanding happened so that we could demonstrate now, 200 years later, they now go like, oh, we messed up it's something other than what we thought it was. And hence you can see how this process could lead to um, people thinking that God thinks things only to have to disavow them hundreds of years later.
1: Yeah. So it essentially comes down to the, what is most likely if we're trying to say what's probably going on here with both Ben Franklin and Mormons is that they are, like that, like that quote that we just read before, they're just kind of squishing together sense perception and subjective interpretation, not really being able to tell the difference. That they haven't right. they haven't drawn a distinction between what they perceived, like I just see the computer or see this thing, right? And then I interpret it as a computer, or I just see a computer that they're they're having tr- they're having trouble distinguishing what is the sense perception and what is their interpretation of that. So yeah. if 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 we even if we are to believe that there's such a thing as objective certitude this direct connection to the underlying nature of reality you can only say that you have it if and only if you can't possibly be mistaken. That's, that's the key. God, God himself can only be objectively certain about the nature of reality if and only if he can't possibly be mistaken. The problem is, is that human minds that kind of have this sort of false sense of certainty, uh, we, we call that psychological certitude. Uh, it's just that's that's just something that goes on in your brain that basically goes, oh, I'm I am certain that I am right. Well, you, you having a really, really strong firm certainty is not actually the, the test here. The test is, is it at all possible you could be wrong? Because if it's all possible you could be wrong, then you can't possibly have objective certitude. And so that's, that's the, once again the problem when we're talking about how do people come to this uh, uh, position where they believe they are objectively right uh what's probably going on is not that they have achieved objective certitude they've received they they've, they've uh, uh arrived at psychological certitude where they just have convinced themselves that they're 100% right
0: yeah i mean and i was looking for it i i've got a few photos that i, I used to have on my phone i don't have them now but when you first look at the photo you think you're seeing something it looks so obvious immediately And then as you sit and stare at the photo for a minute, it actually is something completely different than you thought it was. And I was going to try to find one of those. But again, you're trusting that not only are your eyes picking up the information, and there's lots of things, there's lots of instances where your perception through your senses can be manipulated to think something other than what it actually is. And even if your senses are picking something up, say a smell, for instance, you might first go like... I know what that is, that's this. And then you think about it a little longer, you're like, no, 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 it's not that, it's this other thing. Like we're also prone, even if our senses pick up the data correctly, our thought process can then get in the way and
1: actually give us a different uh, idea about what it is rather than the actual reality of it. Yeah, and that's actually a good point too. There, I, I can't remember the name of the phenomenon, but there's actually something that can happen inside of your brain, where your brain believes you are smelling something but it's actually your brain is creating the sensation of the smell and yeah. so it's it's totally possible that even though you're like oh wow i can totally smell the blah blah, blah. can anyone else smell it and and uh and it's actually not uh it's not even a uh, uh, perception from your nose. It's actually a perception that originated in your brain.
0: My mom was a smoker and when she died of cancer three years ago. My dad swears that she's around because he suddenly can smell cigarette smoke. But if anybody else is around, they don't smell it. So it's something going on with his own sense of loss that he is, that smell is being entered into his mind that he's actually picking it up through his nose. But in
1: reality, it's all inside his head. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, if we can jump to the next slide, so let's uh, let's now start instead of trying to shoot for objectivity, because we can see that there's a problem with each one of those definitions of objectivity. No matter what your subjective uh, 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 interpretations and whatnot end up getting in the way of something that's truly objective. So what we're gonna shoot for is something a little bit different here. We're gonna call it reasonableness. And reasonableness is, you know, you and I have talked about this. We've talked about this a couple of times on the show even. Uh, We're just trying to uh, basically establish a set of rules. And I I should have mentioned this on the very first slide, but uh, but one of the, I, I guess I kind of did. One of the rules that we need to follow is that it can't be something that needs to go into the house in the first place. So if they, if what we're if what we're talking about is values and how do you get to your values, you can't appeal to a value to create your foundation. You have to appeal to something else. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to create a set a set of rules that themselves uh, are not so much a. Uh, I'm not starting with a belief in God or a belief not in God in in order to come to what is likely a set of values that you may or may not have and why you might have those values. Uh, and so. We, we've already we've already seen one of the problems of just the idea of perception and then how to overcome that. Uh, the first the first is to separate the sense perception from the subjective uh, interpretation inference. That would be one of the very first things that we have to do. And it's really hard and it, there's no no guarantee that even if you are are starting out and saying, well, that's what I intend to do is to separate my sense perception from subjective interpretation. Um, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to do it and so it helps a lot to you know have friends around to kind of ask the question well is that also what you perceive in order to kind of see if your maybe your subjective interpretation is kind of getting in the way of what you're actually perceiving but that's the first thing that's not that's not telling us to be good it's not telling us to be uh bad uh, it's not telling us to harm other people it's not telling us to love other people it's just saying Separate out what you think you see from what you are, are actually perceiving. That's the, the first step. Okay. The next step is to treat indistinguishable perceptions indistinguishably. And so here, the reason we have all these cows and X's and one up here is because again, we're just starting our, our brain is so quickly, it's just looking at those little pictures of cows and little pictures of X's and seeing a cow and seeing an X. But what I'm saying is actually take it another step back. This is again we're kind of looking under the bed at the at the monster it's a little bit it's a little bit uneasy to think about this to, to consider the fact that when i'm looking at one of those x's i'm not actually looking at an x i'm just looking at something at which i am interpreting as an x i'm not looking at a cow i'm looking at something which i interpret as a cow but so what the step two is trying to say is i'm not I'm not so much trying to do my interpretation yet. All I'm trying to do is say the two images, what's the, the two entities at the top over on the right, uh, they're not two X's, they're just two somethings which I cannot tell the difference between. I can't distinguish them, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So all I'm, all I'm saying is I can distinguish between one of those X's in the Y or one of those X's in the cow, But between the two X's, I can't distinguish them. And that's something that just truly does happen inside of your brain. There's no way there's no way that I can either I can tell a difference or I can't tell a difference. And so if I cannot tell a difference, I need to treat them as the same thing, the same type of entity. So I see the two little cows down there. I don't know their cows right now. I don't know exactly what they are. I'm not trying to put a label on them. All I'm saying is I can't tell the difference between them. And so I'm going to treat them as the same entity.
0: Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Um, the, the other side of the coin is that, again, our brain can be tricked into taking things that are the same and thinking that they're different. So the easy one that I could go to is that if you cut a paper plate so that it forms like a little rainbow, just cut that section of the plate out and you put one above the other, the one on top looks like it's bigger than the one on the bottom or vice versa. And it's, it's, a, it's a way that we take a shape of something That's exactly identical to the shape of something else. And we can manipulate our brains into thinking that they're different when in reality, they're the same. This side of the coin is simply you're looking at things, you see data, your brain is telling you that that thing and this other thing are, as you point out, indistinguishable from each other.
1: Yeah. And, and it's it doesn't necessarily mean that they are or are not actually distinguishable from each other. It's mm-hmm. only that inside of your brain you can't distinguish. And so once again, this kind of is a helpful thing to have friends who can kind of point out your uh, you know misperceptions to say, well, wait a second, that one X on the left has a little teeny black dot that does not exist on the X on the right. And so somebody might help you and say, look, I can show you how they are distinguishable because I see that that's got a little black dot on it. And so... And then now from that point on, if you can also see the black dot, then you can also say, yeah, they're distinguishable by that little black dot or the cow over here is missing a hoof or whatever the case is.
0: Or maybe you're colorblind and you, unlike everyone else around you, is unable to distinguish things that are distinguishable because your receptors inside your head, the way your senses work, have a blind spot
1: yes and mm-hmm. in fact so that kind of makes an argument for religionists who believe that they're receiving revelation is that they'll go well you're just you're just colorblind that's that's the reason why you can't see it um yeah. and that and that's possible we, we have to allow for that possibility it that is there possible. is something there but we're still going to have to they're still going to have to show that there's some like we we can still draw a distinction in a way that colorblind people even if they are colorblind they can still be it, we can still demonstrate to a colorblind person that there are distinctions between the colors. For example, we can have two people who are not colorblind, who are working independent of each other, walk into the room independently and say, that's green and that's red. And the second person can walk in and say, that's green and that's red. As long as we can demonstrate these people are working in collusion together, we can see that there is something that they know that they couldn't possibly know unless there is actually distinguish, dis, something distinguishing those colors. So there's a, there's a way to solve that problem. Okay. Okay, ne- next slide is ki- kind of what we were just discussing. but the basic point is is that I need to be able to demonstrate that this is dis- this is either indistinguishable or distinguishable. And then I place things into classes uh, based on uh, whether or not I can distinguish them or not distinguish them. And that's the basic just. Right. Right. Okay. And then this would be kind of our third, third rule. Um, which is what you and I have talked about a lot, which is what we're trying to do is bring in all the sense perception that we possibly can. We're, 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 so we're first we're separating sense perception from subjective inter- interpretation. We're distinguishing uh, entities that are distinguishable and, and classifying things that are indistinguishable. And then what we try to do is limit our subjective interpretation as much as possible. So if we see the same entity over and over and over again, and people are calling it a cow, I don't really care what we call it. It it doesn't matter if I grew up in a, a Uh, environment where they refer to it as a cow or if they call it a I don't remember the Spanish name for cow but whatever you know different different people call cow they call yeah they call them different things but that's not really the key the key is when we see the same type of entity over and over again we use the same term to refer to it and so whatever that name came uh, was applied to the to the entity that's not really what's important here the important thing is unless there's some reason for this new entity that we see to distinguishing it from the other things that we have called cows, then we should just call this thing a cow as well. Okay. And that's how we, that's how we come up with these rules. But once again, I, w- I want to go back to the foundation, this, this concept of the foundation and say what we have done from this, at this point, at no point did we say anything about a belief in God or not a belief in a God. Right. I have not, I haven't said anything about a belief in cows. I haven't said a belief in X's. I haven't said a belief about anything. All I've said is I have sense perceptions Whether or not, maybe I'm not actually getting sense perceptions from outside of my body. I don't know that either. I haven't decided any of those things at this point. All all I have done is just established rules for how I'm going to categorize and organize impressions that I am receiving. And I, I can't say that I'm not receiving impressions. Because I am, I, there, there is something telling me that there's a, there, you know, there isn't, I haven't, I haven't decided at this point that there's a computer sitting in front of me, but I, I can't deny the fact that I'm receiving the impression of something. Yeah. It's not, it's not the lack of impression. And so these are the rules that we'll notice that at no point did I choose a value for any of these things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Deciding anything. So this, this is the very simple what, where we're going. And now in the next slide, now we're going to start applying this. We're going to start applying these rules. So, and this goes back to our second definition of objectivity to say, it's possible that I'm in the matrix. It's possible that what I'm seeing is real or how you said with the uh uh, sorry, I've forgotten the analogy you're using, but but it's, it's possible we're in the matrix or it's possible that we're not. Okay, so here's my two theories. And just applying these two rules, I can't objectively know. I don't have God's you know, perspective of whether I'm actually in the matrix or if I'm actually just sitting here in a, in a chair in the real world. But what I can do is I can separate what is perception from what is inference. That's the first thing that I'm going to do. Now, in order for the matrix theory to be true that means that there's some machines and there's some robots and there's some programming code and there's a bunch of other things that that must exist for that theory to be true the problem is i don't perceive any of those things now of course it could all be hidden from my brain it could all of course they're not sending me you know the the signals to tell me about computer programming and, and the robots and everything like that, they're right. intentionally trying to hide that from me. And, the you know, if I'm looking at the the image of the theory one, I see that there's some trees in there. Now, of course, those trees could be not physical trees, but they could be digital trees, right? And so it's possible, but the, the machines are intentionally trying to, if the theory two is correct, they're trying to trick my brain into believing that those things are physical trees, not digital. So they're intentionally hiding the digital from me. And so I have to assume that here's something that appears physical, but then on top of that is the inference, not the sense perception that there's a digital uh, background to the tree. That there's not not the sense perception, but the inference that there are robots and that there are programming and whatever the case is. So theory two, right from the get-go, if I'm gonna say I'm trying to limit my inference as much as possible, I have to assume that the most reasonable explanation is that I'm just sitting here in my chair and that I'm not in the matrix.
0: Right, that regardless of whether theory one or theory two is true, the stimuli that's entering your eyesight and your nose and your ears looks, feels, sounds the exact same. You would not be able to tell the difference. If you and your brain want to jump to theory two, you have to add inference, conjecture, allowances. You have to create more things that you don't know about, but for which you are assuming are there that theory one doesn't
1: require. Yes. And so, and once again, notice how I didn't start with the the presupposition that the world is physical. And I didn't start with the presupposition that Mm -hmm. the world is digital. All I did was separate out sense perception from subjective interpretation.
0: Right. You didn't make a conclusion. You're just noting that one theory uh, you can get by on with what you have in front of you and the other theory you have to make extra leaps to get to, not that one is true or false.
1: And and so, yeah, and it's if we were looking at this from like the objective definitions, there's no way that I can possibly know based on just what you said, if it was all hidden from me and it was intentionally hidden from me and all made to look like it was physical under theory two, then what I'm looking at, there is no possible way that I can say, I know with God's perspective that this is definitely a physical world, or this is definitely a a digital world. But by just following these simple rules that does not start with the conclusion in order to come to the conclusion. So it's not, I'm not, I'm not starting inside of the house. I'm starting with a set of rules that are, that themselves don't posit that the world is physical and don't posit that the world is digital. I can conclude that it is reasonable that theory one is more likely than theory two.
0: Right. And I think and so hopefully in the is, audience
1: that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And so th- th- this is, this is actually why it's really, really important to understand that what we have done with these rules then is something very different than just saying, uh, because I want to be a good person. Right. Because I these rules, once again, I haven't started with whether I want to be a good person or a bad person or even what good and bad even means. I'm not making any kinds of decisions on those types of things when I get into this. So it's the same thing when I'm talking about theism or atheism. I'm not starting with the assumption that theism is true or that atheism is true in order to come to what is most likely. Yeah. And, and we can we can apply that to theism and atheism right now and say, well, what's more likely? OK, well, we can we can divine uh, d- devise a world in which God is not necessary. And right there, that's the problem. By, by, by saying, as long as we can account for everything, I can account for everything that's going on in theory one without making the assumption of of the computers and the robots and the programming code, then those things become unnecessary. And it's as soon as they become unnecessary, then you have already demonstrated why that is a less reasonable theory. And that's actually what you get with God. And in
0: re again, reality could be theory one reality could be theory two, but the rational mind has to select the theory that requires the least amount of inference, the least amount of allowances, the least amount of conjecture. Hence, when you create extra inferences, conjecture allowances by deciding that it is theory two, and there are people out there who think we're in the simulation, right? Um, the moment you do that, you are choosing the something other than the most rational answer. It, yeah. Again, someday we may learn that we are in fact in the simulation, and that will require that will require new evidence to come forward, which then convinces all of us collectively, <clears throat> most of us collectively, to then decide theory two is now the most rational answer. But until that information comes forward, it isn't. and hence anybody choosing to believe that prior to it being the most rational answer is being irrational.
1: Yeah. And notice that you said when if if that day ever comes that we actually realize we're inside of a simulation, it's not going to come from interpretation or inference. Mm-mm. It's going to come from sense perception. Mm-mm. We have to have something where we perceive it. And the least inferential explanation for that is matrix robots. Or there has matrix. to be new data. Yeah, there has to be new, new data. New data. That yeah. our we, have, we have to per, per, perceive something. So again, mm-hmm. if somebody wanted to convince me that theory two is correct, it's they're not. They sh- they shouldn't be pointing to more inference in order to make their point. More inference just makes it less likely. Yeah. And so I don't. I don't want more inference. And so this is why the problem where and and uh, this reminds me of that Carrie uh, Milstein quote. Do you have that handy?
0: Yeah, uh, I can play it. I can play it, per- it right now.
1: Yeah, that'd be great. And so I start out with
2: an assumption that the book of Abraham and the book of Mormon and anything else, <clears throat> excuse me, that we get from uh, the restored gospel.
1: I think you might have shut him off with your
2: uh, sound off. Within that paradigm, you you because to it? me it's a given that no, it's true. Here. There are okay. other. Let me. Pretty- Sorry. And so I start out with an assumption that the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon and anything else, excuse me, that we get from uh, the restored gospel is true. Therefore, any evidence I find, I will try and fit into that paradigm. I don't feel that I need to defend that paradigm. I feel that I want to understand the evidence that I find within that paradigm, because to me, it's a given that it's true. There are others who will assume that it's not true. And on these points, we'll just have to agree to disagree. But we will understand one another better when we understand how our beginning assumptions uh, color the way we, we filter all of the evidence
1: that we find. Yeah. yeah. So, so notice that essentially what he's doing is he's saying when the question on the table is whether the book of Abraham is true, I start from the assumption that the book of Abraham is true. And so he's trying to basically argue that the opposite side must start with the assumption that the Book of Mormon is or the Book of Abraham is false. And it's just simply not true. That's that you don't have to. but, But once again, what he's doing is he's starting inside of the house in order to come to the conclusion of what's inside of the house. He didn't, he didn't actually go under the house and give us something else that is not the belief in the book of Abraham or, yes, the, book of, the belief in the book of Abraham in order to conclude that the book of Abraham is true. So he's starting with this kind of weird circular reasoning to arrive at his conclusion i have not my my rules do not say anything about whether the world is physical i don't start with the assumption that the world is physical i don't start with the the assumption that the world is digital i don't start with the assumption that there's a god i don't start with the assumption that there isn't a god i'm only starting with these three these three rules in order to arrive at what is most likely yeah love it okay Okay, you want to do the the next yeah next next slide okay so uh so now we'll kind of get back to this question of where do you get your values from uh the uh this is a this is a really important good question i think we've kind of already covered the reasons why this is important there are uh we we kind of want to know that the you're you're unlikely to change your perspective and also that you're also you're a safe person to be around essentially now there are a couple problems though if what we mean by the question is are your values objective we've already kind of covered a couple of these things but the point is Uh, like with divine command theory there's all kinds of other issues we think about like the the Lafferty uh, brothers uh, the under the banner of heaven story or whatever where divine command theory is essentially saying that a value is objectively good because God says so well we can already we can already see with the the under the banner of heaven stuff the Lafferty boys you know killing their sister-in-law that if they believe that they're doing that because God told them or we can use you know. Mormons go, well, they, they weren't listening to God. That was just their own. Oh, it was their own subjective interpretation of, of sense imp- impressions that they got. Um, or Nephi, where Nephi was commanded to kill Laban. Okay, well, unfortunately, you can't, if you accept that the Book of Mormon is true and you accept that the Nephi was actually receiving r- a real message from God, you have to deal with what that means to say that God is commanding you to go around and, and murder people. And so, so again, if you say that your values are objective, that doesn't even solve the problem of what, what, where you get your values from? Because I, I want to know that you're safe, right? That's the reason why I'm asking the question. I want to know that you're a safe person to be around, and so of course we know that most Mormons are not going around believing that God is telling them to kill people, and so there, there's a, something else that we can kind of say, despite the fact that they believe in the Book of Mormon, they're still they still have another set of values that's actually outside of Mormonism that they use to look at the Book of Mormon and go, yeah, that's not going to happen.
0: And you can well, see could. that from the twenty. And you can see that from the twenty thousand foot view when you recognize that essentially 100% of Christians don't follow all of God's laws because in the modern day, all Christians, and again, I'm 99.99999, and the and the 0.00001% that's left is either in prison for holding up their values or they're a, a genocidal maniac running around that we haven't caught yet. But all Christians essentially agree that, We should not exactly follow everything that God has said to his uh, spokesmen that have then passed along those rules to us. They also, all Christians agree there's some flaw in that system of God speaking, man listening, putting his words down on paper, and creating rules that we follow. Because all Christians are ignoring at least some, if not most, of all of God's laws that he's given us
1: yeah and so they they have they are if the foundation was god commanded it then they should be like nephi and go out and kill if god commands it like but but they're but if they were to say "Mm, i don't know about that god then that whatever caused them to question the foundation is actually their foundation
0: yeah if somebody rapes your daughter you're certainly not going to let the rapist pay you 20 pieces of silver and now you let him marry your daughter again you're deciding which rules in the rule book no longer apply and hence you're using some sort of modern inference to decide that god no longer is right about that thing or that somebody who was in charge of interpreting it a long time
1: ago got it wrong yeah so, yeah. so we we can kind of we can kind of see that even if you were to say that somehow God's view is the objective view of morality, there are still problems with that yeah. concept. It uh, still doesn't but, work. Yeah, Hume Hume's is a problem. It, it's it kind of takes a little too long to get into. But the point is that even if it's written into the fact, even if something is written into the fabric of society of the universe Mm uh to say wine is good or coffee is bad or whatever that doesn't necessarily mean that 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 you ought to just because that happens to be the way that the universe wrote the rules okay so what so what why why does that if god tells me like i'm i'm now nephi and it's written into the rules that I, i need to kill laban it's like well, but God, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not as super intelligent as you are. I'm not omniscient. And yet I can think of 10 different ways to solve this problem without killing the guy. I can, I can get those plates. You can just feed the idea, you know, all of the, the text of the, the, the brass plates into my brain. There's all kinds of ways that I could have avoided af- actually committing murder. And so the very fact that God is the author of right and wrong doesn't necessarily mean that that was right and wrong. And so right. it's so it's still it's still problematic, and then the third one we've already kind of covered, but the the basic idea is how even if it's written into the the fabric of the universe, how do you as a subjective being access objective values
0: yeah and in, in fact, there are even believing latter day saints out there who have posited the theory that Nephi was essentially justifying his own act because he realized at some point he could have done something different again. And and all of that is just someone else deciding how to interpret the data that came before, which shows you demonstrates the flaw um, in how this all works. Like you couldn't get 10 Mormons in a room to completely agree on what this all should look like. Hence You should recognize that anytime you're claiming God is giving it, there's plenty of evidence to show that even if he is, we don't have any way to discern it entirely as it should be.
1: Yeah. And so as soon as you start making excuses for divine command theory, as soon as you say that Nephi was doing the wrong thing or that, well, that wouldn't happen to me, or even if it did, I would, you know, I would question it and come up, ask God, can I do something different? Well, then what you're really saying is... That uh, you don't actually have access to objective values. That there, that there's either either we have to start with the message comes. Here's how I here's how I can demonstrate how I could not possibly be wrong. And good luck on showing that being a subjective being. How do you demonstrate that you can't possibly be wrong? How can we demonstrate that Nephi couldn't possibly be wrong? That the Lafferty brothers couldn't possibly be wrong? And then even if you get to that, then to just say. Okay. Well, then, how did you? How can you prove that you receive it subjectively or yeah. objectively in the first yeah. place? Right. Totally. Okay. Uh, on the next slide, uh, this this is kind of covering what we just talked about, but this is really, really important because what we the the point here is what we're really trying to ask from the question is itself a value. I only care about asking this question because I have other values, which is. I want to stay, I don't want to be the the victim of Nephi and the Lafferty brothers. And so right. I want to know where people are getting their values from, because I want to know that you are a safe person with whom I can build society. And I also want to know that your values aren't going to change on a whim. And I, I threw this in, but we kind of already talked about this, uh, that just that little Part of the bottom, which is when people just refer to inner conscience, the problem is they're still referring to some uh, value that's within the house. It doesn't really tell. It, it doesn't really tell us that somebody is a safe person to build a society with because their inner conscience could be a bad person. Like, yeah. and by bad I mean somebody who's going to harm me, right? I, that's that's what we mean when we say a good person or a bad person. If somebody harms me, I see that as a bad thing, right? Uh, but ironically, when we see, see people harming other people on our behalf, they're the hero, right? Some, somebody's coming to harm me. Somebody else intervenes and stops and harms that person so that that person can't harm me, that person harmed, but they harmed the the right person. And now they're a hero instead of a villain. And so that's what we really mean when we say good and bad, we say, how is that affecting me? Is it harming me or is it not harming me?
0: Yeah, totally. And just for full disclosure, I mean, this was part of the point of view I took in the conversation with Jacob is that I'm I'm being led by what I think is a healthy inner conscience that doesn't do blind obedience to a system or a leader or an outside voice. But as you're pointing out, stopping there and not taking it further leaves me also creating inferences about what's right and wrong and and on some level operating – Again, not in reality, cause we'll get to it, but I'm, I'm
1: explaining it in a way that leaves me entirely operating on
0: subjectivity.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so we're, so we still need to dig under, find, find a, a more firm foundation to, to build our, our values as well. Totally. Okay. Okay, and then on the next slide, the the only point of this slide was just essentially to draw distinction between certain kinds of values. Like uh, just in the last slide, I was talking about somebody coming to harm me. Someone's coming to try to to hit me or shoot me or whatever the case is. Those are the kinds of values that I care about when I'm asking this question, where do you get your values from? because what we're not really so concerned about is uh, whether or not somebody, and Mormons too, right? Mormons don't spend all day long trying to, uh, to stop people from drinking coffee. They themselves don't drink coffee, but they can, and I'm trying to essentially draw a little sliver here to say if that little sliver is uh, the, the people who believe that drinking coffee is wrong, is uh, immoral, uh, they can still somehow come together and form a society with everyone else who thinks drinking coffee is just fine. We can somehow all, society can still run the, the you know, traffic rules can still kind of keep us all together and business rules can all keep us together and whatnot. And yet somehow, even though we, God is so mad about people drinking coffee that he doesn't let people get a temple recommend for drinking coffee, somehow Mormons are able to work with All these other people in order to come to determination of how should society work we can disagree Mm. on coffee we have a hard time disagreeing on murder right but the question really is the, the the value that you're talking about how does it affect me how does it hurt hurt or help me and so what i'm really asking with this question where do we get values from i'm really asking are your values the sort of values that will help me or help us together collectively create a, a safe society for me? And is the basis of your values something that I know that is, we're not going to all wake up tomorrow and you're going to have a complete opposite set of values? Yeah, totally. Okay. Okay, so uh, this kind of is just sort of wrapping up all of the ideas that we have talked about up to this point. The the basis for uh, the adopting a particular claim can't be the, the the moral or truth claim itself. These have to be the legs. and these And the, the point of this slide is essentially to say, I agree with Jacob. When Jacob is asserting that the basis has to occur outside of the house, has to be a foundational principle that is not itself the value that's being contested, then uh totally agree so we can't have a basic assumption of your argument that is uh that is that you're appealing to that as your foundation the problem is if we jump over to the next slide the problem is jacob spends most of his arguments going through and saying the basis can only occur inside of the house this is essentially the carrie millstein quote Right. And so he says, no matter what, if you're an atheist or a theist, you must start with the belief in atheism or theism in order to come to your conclusions about values. As we have demonstrated as we're walking through this, that's just simply not true. At no point did I did I say that you must start with the belief in theism or atheism in order to come up with what is likely the situation with are you in the matrix or not in the matrix? Or is there a God or is there not a God? None, None of that was required in order to do this. Yeah, Totally. Okay, this is just a fun quote, uh, just because I think it kind of helps set the stage for uh, the, the problem of evolution of art, sorry, the problem of evolution as seen through the eyes of theists, that they see that God is the only possible answer to both our rationality and also for our value system or whatever the case is. But again, evolution isn't a basic assumption of theism or atheism. There are lots and lots and lots of theists Who believe in evolution? Evolution doesn't absolutely necessarily automatically lead to a belief that there is no God, Uh, and I am not starting with the assumption that that uh, uh, evolution is even true to begin with. I'm just saying it's more likely based on the rules that we have established. Right. So, but this is a this is a really good quote, and it's really important to kind of see like through this lens. Uh, of theism, how they're looking at the the, the possibility of, of evolution, and then Jacob refer, kept using these these terms, something like random chaos or the random happenings of of uh, chemicals, you know, occurring in your body or whatever the case is. Like that, that's the basis. That's the basis of your value system. Well, I, if it was all ran, completely one hundred percent random, I would agree. And this is kind of what the quote is is trying to get at here. Supposing there was no intelligence behind the universe, no creative mind. In that case. Nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. It's merely that when the atoms inside my skull happen for physical or chemical reasons to arrange themselves in a certain way, this gives, as a byproduct, the sensation that I call thought. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true so if we're starting with this foundation of evolution and we assume that evolution is just completely random processes, how can I, how can I then conclude this idea that my values are good or that my, my thoughts are true or whatever the case is? It's like upsetting a milk jug and hoping that the way it splashes itself will give you a map of London. But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism and therefore I have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I cannot believe in thought so I can never use thoughts to disbelieve in God. Just sound sounds so perfect, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, except it feels like a straw man, but sure.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of just we're we're setting up the point of is is evolution actually arguing for random chaos? Is that actually what happens? Is that actually how evolution works? No.
0: can right. Can thought be explained in any other way? that doesn't involve a uh, creator God or could involve evolution. And then whatever possibilities your brain can come up with, put them all on the table and then pick the one that has the least amount of
1: inferences or conjecture or allowances. Yeah. So we need, we need some other way to explain why s- brains organization of brains can be uh you know a a legitimate way to say okay i can see how it arrived at rational thought in order or or values for that matter and we'll see that evolution actually explains both of them
0: i was going to say starting off with single cell life forms and working to extreme complex multi-cell life forms um sounds exactly like the pattern that works itself out in real life but anyway
1: yes Yeah. And so let's let's think through the logic with the next slide here of how that actually happens. So let's start with a single cell uh, amoeba and what's going on. Now, of course, single cell amoebas obviously, by definition, do not have brains since brains are themselves are multiple cells coming together. But we could also be looking at this as like a sperm because the sperm actually is doing this. It's actually doing the same thing. And so we can kind of see what's actually happening. So there's not a it's not a brain so much. As it is, when we understand what is a brain, a brain is logic circuits, and with with AI kind of popping out here, we can kind of see how easily that we can see that brains can occur through just the the uh, the, the, the banging of two rocks together. Essentially, essentially what we do with AI is we uh, we get uh, an answer spit out. It starts out random. It, it, the, the, the whole br- the whole concept of an AI brain is that all of the connectomes inside of that brain are essentially just random. and then we ask it a question, we get out an answer, and we go no, the correct answer was supposed to be this. And then what the what the AI system does is it goes back through the the brain and it goes, "Wait, I got it wrong," and so therefore it, it was wrong because of this and wrong because of this." and eventually we we do this thousands and thousands and thousands of times, and eventually what happens is it creates sort of a curve that follows the correct answers and says, "Oh, the connectome should have been arranged like this in order to come up with the correct answer, and then all of a sudden you get chat GDP that can you know do uh answer uh do 90 percent on a law school test so that's basically what brains are that's in fact that's the beginning of evolution and evolution is a response that that response process that that happens in ai where we go nope that's wrong you got to do this nope that's wrong do this and it eventually creates the logic that we see in ai that's what happened with brains that's what happens with organisms so this organism, and again we can we can think of it like a sperm, right? The sperm is actually doing the same thing without a brain as well. What it's doing is it has a little flagellum that gives it a choice. It's got it's, it has a way to receive input and a way to use the, its little flagellum to choose an output. And so what's happening is it receives some sort of an input, And then the chemicals inside of it behave like uh, logic gates, just like what you would see in a CPU or inside of a computer program, that those logic gates say, if it's food, go toward it. If it's danger, go away from it. And then that process. Now, if we think we can consider like we have two random amoebas where one is programmed like food, good, danger, bad. And then we think of another amoeba that's programmed food, bad, danger, good. So that number two, we draw a logic map that says, if it's danger, move toward it. And if it's food, move away from it. And so those little logic gates that are happening, this isn't really a brain, but it's, there are chemical logic gates that are occurring inside of those little amoebas that say, go toward food and away from danger, or we can hypothesize another amoeba that does exactly the opposite. And what is going to be the outcome if, of, for map number two versus map number one? Oh, you're on, you're on the, yeah, it, it could be in,
0: um, if we go back in time to whatever the very first set of life was on this planet, somewhere deep in the ocean, whatever it was, and let's just, you know, single cell organism of some sort, let's say there's a hundred of them. Um, and by the way, there probably could have been life before there was this branch of life and it just didn't make the right decision and it extinguished, right? So whatever that first branch of life was, let's say there's a hundred of them, single cell organisms, and a certain degree of sunlight kills them and staying deeper in the ocean where there isn't sunlight, they live. And it, it could have started off completely random and 50 went up a little too high and died and 50 stayed down low and learned somehow. I want to use that language. Um, the ones that preferred to stay lower genetically understood even though it's not a learned thing per se necessarily that staying down lower they lived now the 50 are gone they don't get to perpetuate the species at all they're done the ones that didn't go up higher to the sunlight live if there's any sort of replication there's going to be a stronger propensity for the next generation of them to also stay lower and any of them that go up too high die and so little by little, generation after generation, we are – the, these organisms would be genetically programmed to do the task that led to survival. And any of them that did the task that led to death are gone. They're not perpetuating. And when yep. you do that, generation after generation over billions and billions of years, that turns into something.
1: Yeah, these logic gates, that's exactly what it is. So if Mm -hmm. we think of the exact opposite logic gate that moves toward danger and away from food, those die off or statistically speaking, are highly likely to die off as opposed to the ones who get the logic gates right. Now, how did they get the logic gates? The logic gates are just, those are random mutations. Those are random genetic mutations that create those logic gates in the first place. But the reason why these guys move on to perpetuate to the next is not random. It doesn't come from randomness. It comes from banging up against reality. And so that's, that's what's actually doing the programming is that there, there is actually danger out there and there is actually food out there. And when they have that little if-then code inside of their brain that takes them toward food and away from danger, that's what allows them to continue on to the next uh, generation to perpetuate and to, to propagate. And it's actually the same. Again, I keep saying sperm, but it's essentially that's what's going on with sperm, right? Sperm is moving toward uh, the right place and not toward the wrong place because of a chemical reaction. It's it, and it's and it only gets that right because after millions and millions of years of uh, of this process, if, if there's a sperm that goes the wrong direction, it's not going to create a new posterity. Right. And so mm. it has to go. Of course, it goes the right direction because otherwise the, the species wouldn't perpetuate.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: So this accounts for two really important things and also accounts for this is the legs for why you can trust your eyes. So, uh, but first, it accounts for truth. For so, when we say like, why? How? How? How does C.S. Lewis trust his brain to know that he's actually looking at, uh, you know, his his dinner and not being eaten by a tiger? Because of this, because after millions and millions of years of uh, uh, this this process of getting it right, and getting it right only means that. They were able to move toward food and away from danger or you know more complex in our world it's that you can go get a job and get money as opposed to starving to death or whatever the case is but that process by getting it right that tends to demonstrate that you're not being eaten by a tiger right now so your eyes are somewhat reliable in in knowing what's actually going on because your eyes are just sensing what your environment just like this amoeba is sensing food and if, the, if, the, if he was completely mistaken, if that amoeba was completely mistaken about what is danger and what is food, then he would just be dead. The very fact that I am here and I'm not being eaten by a tiger says I can, my eyes are somewhat accurate.
0: Correct. That your brain and your senses have come up with ways to be the most, to be at least, I mean, most is the wrong word, to be at least effective enough at surviving that you are able to do the things you're able to do.
1: yeah Yeah. and then second it also and more importantly to our overall discussion is that it also accounts for values and it seems weird it seems weird to say that but we have already created a value system at this moment Yeah. Values already occurred because what's happening here is, uh, by choosing by, by those chemical, the little chemical, uh, organ, uh, organization that prefers food and prefers to move away from danger has already generated a value system inside of this amoeba.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: He doesn't, he doesn't want to die. That's why he, that's, that's right here. The other guys, if they had exactly the opposite, we would just say, well, by definition, his little his little programming code inside of his chemicals, he does want to die. The map number two is the, the value system for wanting to die. And this value system, map number one, is the value system for wanting to stay alive. And so yeah. right now, we already have a value system for the, the, the belief that I want to stay alive. Now, let's go back to why we're even asking this question in the first place. Where do your values come from? The reason why we're asking this question is because we want to build a society of people who are safe to be around and that we know that it's not gonna change on a whim, right? So we already have the basis of that value system right here with this little amoeba, because we know that every, most every human, now of course, again, there are some, some very few minor exceptions of people who do not wish to stay alive. But for the most part, if you hold anybody's head underwater, they're going to fight like hell to to break out of that because they very much want to stay alive. Now, why do they want to stay alive? Because of this, because of the coding inside of their brain that has programmed them to desire staying alive.
0: Because we've done it over billions of years. And the reason we're here is because everything that was our previous generation and the one before that, all the way back to whatever this organism is, have made decisions based on flourishing um, rather than throwing in the towel.
1: Yeah. And flirt, flourishing. So even like saying flourishing, uh, it, while true, it's, it doesn't really get to the problem because flourishing itself is a value, right? Because, well, is, is flourishing good or bad? Is it, is it right? Is it true? Is it objectively true that species should desire to stay alive? The, the answer is it doesn't matter because ultimately when it comes down to it, if you have that map too, you're going to die. You're going to die yeah. off. And so like if if your species has the the map two programming, you're not here to even ask the question. The very fact that your species is here asking this question means you have map one. Does that make map one right or good or whatever? It's totally irrelevant. All that means is that's the reason we're asking the question, what is your value system? Where do you get your values from? You only care about that because you care about I want to stay alive. I don't want people to kill me. And so I want to know what your values are. You're asking that question because of the same thing that caused that little amoeba to, to move toward food and away from danger. It's the same exact yeah. thing. Love it. So on the next, the next slide is just essentially kind of just saying, now we take that, uh, you know, the, the little red node at the very bottom toward food away from danger. We can, we can imagine uh, kind of a chain of values that form as we are having a chain of uh, evolutionary advances or not, not even advances, we just say different uh, forks in the road of what's going on with evolution. Now, there are different, different paths that go out here where one of them could be communal empathy. At some point in this process of evolution, some species picked up this concept of communal empathy, like lions and chimps and all kinds of other animals prefer being in groups because they prefer staying alive. And they've realized that staying in groups is actually what keeps them safe. And so that concept of communal empathy, well, platypuses, I don't know if it's because they broke off from uh the The rest of the mammal family at this point or there there could be some other mammals that are that are not like this, and uh there could be snakes and lizards who are like this, but the point is is that each of these acquired at some point this concept of communal empathy or didn't acquire this this concept of cumulopathy so when we're asking this the first the key is the trait was not. A, a decision or a choice. It didn't occur from inside of the house. I I do not choose to stay alive. Just do the same thing. If somebody were to hold my head underwater, my body will just automatically, autonomically, kick into survival mode and do everything I can to escape out of that. I'm not choosing that value. I I want very much to stay alive. If somebody's trying, if somebody's trying to harm me, I'm going to do everything in my power to stop that from happening. But also. From, for millions and millions and millions of years, humans have had this concept of communal empathy, of this feeling of knowing that, uh, that you are safer in an, uh, an environment. You're, you're more in that protecting of yourself, but keeping yourself safe when you are part of a community as opposed to on your own. And so, of course, there are going to be a few exceptions of people who, for whatever reason, don't care about staying alive. There are gonna be a few people for whatever exception lack that communal empathy. But the reality is, it doesn't matter if you believe in God or don't believe in God. It doesn't matter if you believe in evolution or don't believe in evolution. Doesn't matter if you believe you're in the matrix or not believe in the matrix. You have these traits, statistically speaking. And so when we ask this question, how do I know your values aren't gonna change on a whim? We already know that because of evolution. That's, That's how we arrived at the point that we are to even ask that question in the first place. Is that person safe? I can't, I can't say that that one individual is safe, but I can say that overwhelmingly 99%, the probability is that person wants to stay alive themselves, that we, that we can work together and that they have communal empathy, that we can work together to create an environment that accomplishes the goal of why I'm even asking the question in the first place. I can't know that with each individual person, but I can know it broadly for the, for the entire human species.
0: In the other side of the coin, anybody who brings up the bad apples, um, whether there's a God or not a God, the bad apples are there anyway. Um, The bad apples, a person who wants to harm others and not follow the collective desire to be good to each other, for instance, to have communal empathy, the bad, the bad apple, whether there's a God or not, that person's still there. Again, this isn't part of this conversation, but if you're going to deal with the bad apples, you still have to figure out what approach best keeps the bad apples at distance and recognizes their unhealthiness and keeps them at distance from the rest of the tribe who's practicing communal empathy
1: yeah and and i think another key point to that is that the the bad apples there's no there's no rhyme or reason to those bad apples appearing inside of religion or outside of religion because it doesn't have anything to do with religion the, the, the belief that just belief like this, thing.
0: I mean, the bad yeah. apples, the one that goes towards the danger. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, there's, again, it, the, um, there isn't anything you could have done to make that not exist, they're going to exist, they're either going to hurt others or hurt themselves by their decision process not being in the best interest of survival.
1: Yeah. And when we, even when we say bad apple, we're saying that from the perspective of our map, totally. right? It's a, it doesn't, it doesn't mean map one and map Still two a value judgment map one on is objectively part. right. And map two is objectively wrong. We just mean from the perspective of map one, which is the perspective 99.9% of us have that, that one is counter, uh, communal. Counterintuitive
0: so, to survival and, yeah. and communal collaboration, which is the trait that humans have at least one of them that leads to survival.
1: Yeah. So we so we want to say when we're asking that question, what we're really asking is, can can you build a society with me? And we we don't we can't say that in individually what's going on. But in the aggregate, we, we know that it absolutely is going to happen, that we can always appeal to these basic evolutionary traits to say, well, we're working together. We're trying to create a society. The, the problem is, and this is something that we are still working on, that's something that has not just sort of naturally occurred because of evolution, but it's not solved because of a belief in God. And it's because obviously people have believed in God for you know, thousands and thousands of years, and it hasn't solved the problem, which is that communal empathy works for in-groups. We don't, we don't, we haven't actually acquired this sort of uh, communal empathy for all people and all species like it, it could extend far beyond just even your own group it could extend to lions and chimps and whatnot. But the point is is that we still we are still very tribal we see ourselves as a member of a group that is constantly being attacked from the outside And so when we're talking about it's that same idea that I, I see that person who comes to protect me as the hero right? He's he's the, the guy the guy just killed that guy over there, but he's he's my hero because he protected me. And so he's protecting me from outsiders. And so there is still this problem, but the problem is not gone away because believe you believe in God or don't believe in God. There is still a problem of in-group versus out group. And that's something that humanity still needs to kind of evolve and adapt and work on and whatnot. But the but the reality is we're, we're not there.
0: And by the way, that's also part of this process. So when we go back to the single cell organism and the very beginning of life on earth, it was very egocentric. It was, it was only doing its own thing. It didn't worry about the amoeba next to it. It was only doing its own thing. And somewhere along the way we learned as a species and maybe not even homo sapien, but something before we learned that if we cared about each other, our chances of survival increased. When we were in the jungle, uh, or on the African Serengeti, or living in the trees, we um, at some point we learned that if we only operated with our own interest, things didn't go well generally, and that because other animals were faster, stronger, mean—you know—meaner uh, um, is not the word—more, more violent, more. Um, more able to slip into where we were sleeping without us hearing them and knowing they were coming. We learned the trait that if we operated together as a team, we would survive better. And just as you pointed out, I went too far. Just as Uh you pointed out that it's a evolutionary trait being developed, um, just as we used to be egocentric and there became a moment where we entered ethnocentricity, entered tribalism, um, It is also within the realm of thought when we look around the world and we now sense that we're in a world where one bad guy on the other side of the water can push a button and kill all of us. Like literally Russia has enough nuclear arms that if Putin can get the order out and somebody obeys it, he can literally send off enough nuclear weapons that kills all of us. Once you understand the world we live in, it becomes very easy to grasp. That as we moved from egocentricity to ethnocentricity, we are also right now moving from ethnocentricity to world centricity, where we do value all life as having the same value as those that look like me and act like me. This process is working itself out in real time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And Oops, and I'm I think the, the key, though, or sorry, the key as well to uh, that idea of Putin having all these nukes and whatnot is that. If Putin were to launch those things, it's because of that tribalism. right? He's seeing, he's seeing himself, at Russia, as this, this in-group and the rest of the world as an out-group. And so unfortunately, it doesn't matter whether he believes in God or doesn't believe in God. It, 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 that's actually totally irrelevant to the question as to where he gets his values from. He gets his values from evolution. He sees himself as uh, an as in-group member of a very small group instead of a global community member and so the the process how do we overcome this it's not going to come from a belief in God or a lack of belief in God it's going to come from expanding that communal empathy uh, trait to encompass the the world The, the the problem is. That are the all of we have a bazillion other little values that don't align. And so there's always going to be some sort of conflict. and people are going to still kind of see themselves as aligning with this group of people who more uh, accurate, you know th- th- they maybe align over whether to drink coffee or not drink coffee. And it's like it's not really relevant, but that's because they see that as a shared trait that ends up creating sort of a tribalism. right. Sort
0: of some of our some of our values are self-centered or or selfish they're more worried about our own individual benefit than the species survival. And hence these things come into conflict all the time.
1: Yeah. But I can, if we're asking, how do I, how do I work with other people in order to form a a society where I know that I'm safe, I'm still appealing to these basic values, these values Mm -hmm. that are 99% for sure going to be in the society and continue in society forever. uh, Or for, you know, it's been going for millions of years. I don't see it changing in the next 10 years uh, that that we are going to be able to appeal to each other's sense of wanting to stay alive, wanting to to be protected. uh, And those those types of things are going to continue to gel a society, create a society where uh, people are, are feeling safe, which was the whole reason why they wanted to build society in the first place. Yeah. And the, the next slide was just essentially just making this point that when we have millions of years of, of evolution that are basically driving us, pushing us in this direction to want to stay alive, uh, the overwhelming majority of us are, are all have the same essential maps and the very the nature of reality. Once again, kind of like that AI. When we're talking about the AI, what it's doing is it's banging up against reality. It changes because the nature of reality changes. When the conditions change, you get platypuses as opposed to lions, because the its, it's evolution is banging up against the environment and saying what's likely to survive in this environment. That's what that's how it happens. The reality is, the nature of reality is not going to change in the next there's not going to be some condition that comes up where it's actually more beneficial, more preferable for humans to not want to work together as a community. There's not, there's not. we're not gonna bang up against something that's going to make humans prefer death to preferring life. And so the likelihood of changing on a whim is crazy. It's not, there's not a 50-50 chance that, that, that somehow all, most humans are gonna all of a sudden wake up tomorrow and go, well, I don't care about, life, I just want to I prefer to be dead, that that autonomic reaction to fight like hell to, to not, you know, suffocate underwater is not going away. And so, so this, this is the basis of uh, our value system. Mm-hmm. And the basis of a value system is not random chance. It's not likely to change on a whim, we can build off of these basic uh, shared values in order to create a society that that helps keep us safe. Love it. Okay. Then um, this was just kind of the quote that kind of I guess sums up the thing: it, the, the belief in a god or lack of belief in God isn't going to make people wake up uh, anti-communal because the belief in a god isn't what made people communal in the first place. Well, yeah. li- you, you had said this in the your your last discussion with Jacob. You said it's not the, these these lions exist as a society w- without some sort of belief in a god. They 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 understand the rules, their communal rules, without having any sort of belief, without ever having to think about where their values came from. No no one's ever asked a lion, and the lion given an answer: "Where do your values come from? Why do you prefer being a member of a community?" They just are because that's the programming inside of their brain.
0: You can see that we. I think the example I used was primates, and you can go on YouTube and you can click, uh, you can type in on YouTube "animal morality," and the three or four of the top five or six videos will be. Uh, the science that's been done that shows that other members of the primate family, uh, you know, chimps, bonobos, uh, gibbons, uh, gorillas, they already have moral codes, even though they don't have any. We couldn't even posit that there's a supreme being that gave it to them. That's that's not even real. So we already know that. Wait, wait, Mufasa. Right. The idea that we put, and the idea that such has to come from God in the first place is putting the cart before the horse. You have to recognize at a bare minimum, if you're going to be a rational thinker, you have to recognize that there are um, parts of the animal family that are outside of abstract thinking that we have to imagine a, a supreme being out there who gives us answers to prayers, that animals who have no access to that Created their own moral codes without it.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: And as you Sorry. point out, if the underlying foundation is we want to survive, these are the things that have allowed us to. Because all the animals in our species that didn't do this ended up dying. So these are the traits that we have now. And and if we went back a million years, there would have been at some point. If we go back far enough, there would have been uh, a species of that animal. Again, maybe not even the exact same species. Something earlier that didn't operate that way and when the environment changed they didn't have the skill set to make it and so these traits were the ones that got passed on because as the environment changed as the stimuli was different these are the ones that had the ability
1: to adapt to the new environment and now they're here and the others aren't yeah and no no platypus i mean obviously they're animals but no platypus is asking another platypus where you get your values from they don't care because they don't they don't form communities and so for them the the very question itself is not an objective question it's not it's not even starting it's not starting from an objective perspective it's starting from a very self-centered perspective to say i want to stay alive and i want to make sure that you also want me to stay alive and so it's that question to say where do you get your values from presupposes that you have already gone through this evolutionary chain to say i do want to stay alive i do want to be part of a community and so then you ask this question to say well where do you get your values from well i get my values from the same place that you get you got your values from i got it from evolution and so i can be fairly certain i can't i can't guarantee that any single person did not have some sort of weird you know uh Uh, flip of of the switch that occurred. But statistically speaking, 99% or more are are going to have the same switch that I have. And so when you live in a democracy where most people get to vote and decide whether or not, you know, should we have murder be outlawed or should we have it be requirement that we have to murder? uh, 99% of them are going to say murder should be outlawed. And it it doesn't matter if they believe in God, doesn't matter if they don't believe in God, we're going to all pretty much agree that I don't want to die. And so, oh, working as a community means if I make the same rule and law for you, then that helps keep me safe. And so 99 percent of us are going to vote. Yeah. murder's bad.
0: And it would the other side of the coin is that theist would like to suggest that having a God given morality makes it better. But the reality is even in a God-given morality, some people are choosing to interpret the stimuli as suggesting they do the thing that's counter to the moral code that we're all collectively agreeing to anyway.
1: Yeah. And if you worked it out, probably statistically, it doesn't really have anything to do with whether they believed in a God or didn't believe in a God. It just is statistically, randomly, you're going to get some bad apples. When we say bad, we mean from the perspective of map one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Of counter to the best way to survive as a people.
1: Yeah, um, I did have two other kind of quick thoughts, but they're not really related to this. If you want to call it good here, that's fine. If you want to just kind of cover them real quickly, that's fine too, either way. Let's do it, let's cover them. Okay, so uh, there was something kind of interesting, and this is on the next slide. There was something kind of interesting that Jacob brought up where he said, uh, obviously uh, Christianity has brought about something so amazing that didn't exist you know, for the entire history of humanity uh, and and th- this European Enlightenment did. The, the ways of thinking of the European Enlightenment are so drastic and so different than basically anything that came came before that it is actually kind of interesting to say, uh, well, where did this come from? And so, of course, he's saying it came from Christianity. I, I have a problem with that because we have like 15, 1600 years of Christianity to account for. Like, why didn't this occur in the first century A.D.? Why did did the European Enlightenment not come from this? And the second problem is a lot of these ideas that occur in the European Enlightenment don't exist anywhere in the Bible. It's not. These are, in fact, the things that the European Enlightenment was fighting against do exist in the Bible. This idea of like, you know, obey, obey your leaders and this, you know, the, the divine right of kings, the idea that that humans uh, the people cannot defend themselves, you know, cannot f- make decisions for themselves, cannot rule themselves. Those were ideas that were prevalent in Christianity from, from the get go and basically took us up to the Enlightenment. And so what, what, what is interesting, and this is actually something that seems sort of counterintuitive, but the Enlightenment ideals essentially came from China, not from Europe. The, back in the, the 1500s, I think it was, uh, Matteo Ricci and some other Jesuit priests, they actually did traveling to, uh, to China and started sending back kind of these ideas. Now, of course, uh, from, from China, the ideas from China, uh, like Confucianism, Taoism, whatnot, uh, these kind of took hold in Europe as a result of the movement, which is basically just uh, they, the Europeans kind of got a little excited about China. But one of the important things that happened in this process was that they started, now of course they weren't exactly right. Of course, you know this is this is all happening in the 1600s and the 1700s and they're just getting sort of secondhand information of what was going on in China. But the point is that uh, their interpretation, though of course the, the word again, going back to sense perception and interpretation, right? something is going on in China, they're getting kind of secondhand information and then they're kind of creating their own sense, sense perception. But one of the perceptions that they got was that Confucianism, one, was built on atheism. That atheism was really the driving force of the the life in China and that somehow they were able to uh, still have a ordered uh Safe society in China, and of course again they 're looking at this and saying that 's what I want. I want an ordered safe uh, society in europe, but they the Europeans at the time were thinking the only way to have an ordered safe society is to have somebody who is has direct access to God telling me what should be you know d- don't kill d- you know murder's bad murder's good i don 't know I need the king, and i need I need the Pope to tell me whether murder's bad or murder's good right. Um, but then they, they learn about, they kind of have this this brush up against reality, right? They, they, all of a sudden their perspective starts changing because they see that there, here's this, this uh, entire culture that's been around for uh, a, th- a thousand years or more that is uh, uh, based on atheism. And then so they started seeing that as morally superior to their own system of having a a king and having the Pope basically tell them what to do. This very concept of we the people sort of sprung out of this idea that uh, that it was actually okay for the people to rule themselves, and we don't act that we can do it without without theism. We can do it without uh, somebody with direct access to God, you know, bestowing the 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 Ten Commandments and the rules upon us. We can do it ourselves because look, China's doing it. And then there's another concept too, which is laissez-faire uh, is a is a very important principle in the Enlightenment movement, which was essentially let. It, it, rather than having somebody at the top decide the the economic uh conditions and what should, what should we build and what should we drive the idea was why don't we just let People decide what people want to do. Let them reap the benefits of their own uh, their their own efforts, and uh, you know, receive the the profits from from their own inventions, their own innovations, and whatnot. And this was a the it kind of popped out of the French economist movement, uh, also part of the Enlightenment movement, uh, and they called it laissez faire. Uh, Libertarians love laissez-faire. You talk to a libertarian, they will talk about laissez-faire all the time. I think this is the, one, of the, one of the greatest ideas that have ever come out. Because ultimately, we are we are the beneficiaries of that laissez-faire concept. The very I, you, you think about how uh, what kind sort of technology we had uh, two hundred years ago or three hundred years ago, and then think about start start three hundred years ago and start heading backwards. It's pretty much the same exact technology. Right, the, what, what people were doing 300 years ago to get around in horses and buggies, that's what they were doing 10,000 years ago was moving around in horses and buggies. This laissez-faire idea of let people come up with some invention and then get that invention out to the entire world so that they can then reap the benefits of that sort of builds on each other. And it kind of creates its own environment where uh, we now have cell phones and computers and spaceships and whatnot. But laissez-faire itself didn't, doesn't come from the Bible. That's not an idea that came out of Christianity. It came out of the Swinajiri movement. That the laissez-faire is a literal direct translation of Wu Wei, which is a uh, Taoist uh, philosophy of let it be, let it be. That's and that's literally what laissez-faire means. And so, and I just
0: like, want to put I want to put uh, Richard's comment up here because I think this we could we could address this really quickly. Why is a silent deity necessary if we have our own morality and and um, One thing I would suggest, Richard, and everybody who's watching, and this will go off on a little bit of a tangent, but then I'll come back. Um, Take that question and watch a TV show like Vikings and watch different cultures whose survival depends on, unfortunately, violent tribalism. And if you have a group of people who have other groups of people around them that you are threatened by, it is crucial that you motivate your people to fight with all of their vigor. It is also crucial that you not be questioned. Uh, because if, if every move of yours is questioned, you're creating doubt in the community and your community is now weaker against the outside threats by having that doubt be present in having factions. So by creating an outside voice, God, who is behind your tribe 100% and your leader, You have given yourself an advantage that you would not have if you left the outside authority voice away. And so at some point, part of our ability to create really big myths and to place our moral code in an outside voice, to place us as the chosen uh, group of people and everyone else's other and less than, it becomes really clear to see why God, an outside voice as your authority and your tribe, and as the advocate for your king or your leader, you can sense the survival benefit of those kinds of creations. And if you watch a TV show like Vikings with that question at the bottom of the screen as as the thing you're gonna keep on your mind through all the episodes, you will clearly see why believing, having your tribe believe in God or God's, because it serves the same purpose. And to have those gods be behind your leader and your people and not the other is, uh, a, a, it, it, honestly, it's an amazing technology that humans created somewhere along the way.
1: Yeah, and uh, on on top of that, we can also go back to the evolutionary basis. Like what what is driving most humans? The desire to not die, right? And so there's the idea of, well, unfortunately, for that desire not to die humans recognize and understand that they will age and die and so that gives us a sort of apprehension about the idea of death so it's the very notion of i don't want to die that creates the i need something to kind of give me sort of some hope that's going to get me through to the afterlife. It's only because we care about die, you know, not wanting to die that generates this idea of a god that we that we want to believe that there is something there waiting for me after I die. The val- Valhalla, yes. right? Yeah. yeah.
0: To drive people to go onto a battlefield in intense battles where almost assuredly large numbers of your people will die, they're the uh, the creating the myth. That if I die honorably, I go to this magical place on the other side is an incredible mechanism, an incredible myth to get people to actually put themselves in danger's way. Because as you pointed out, the evolutionary processes run as fast as hell from danger. And yet in certain situations, our collective survival, even at the individual's demise, is crucial to the human race. And as we split ourselves into tribes, convincing the tribe that if they died honorably, they would go to Valhalla meant that you gave them a myth that now they would they would put every bit of their energy into the collective survival, even at the loss of their own life. Okay.
1: And what else? What was the other point you wanted to go into? Uh, I uh, So I, we can probably be done with this one, but the, the, the point is essentially that most of the things that we think of as enlightenment, European enlightenment values, don't really line up with Christian, <laughs> with the, the 1500 years of Christian history, but it does yeah. very much line up with the Shunazuri movement that occurred uh, just kind of uh, as part of the enlightenment occurred at the same essential time. And then the, the very last thing was uh, on the next slide was uh, Jacob had put up a slide where he was essentially saying these are essentially the only two options that you have for uh, if you're t- if you start with a non theist. Now, of course, we've just gone through for the last two hours and talked about why you don't have to actually start with either one of them. It's not it's not it's not like Kerry Milstein is saying that we start from the belief in order to arrive at the belief. But even if we're somehow going to end up in nihilism. Uh, by as a as a pro, if nihilism was in fact by following these rules the the most reasonable of the options that he gave on his map the 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 problem and the reason why I even brought up this thing was because I wanted to kind of comment on some of the ways that he described why we wouldn't choose nihilism and so he used these these he, I, I took these quotes directly he says I don't find this idea of no god compelling. Uh, nih- the nihilistic whole is about as bad as it gets. Now, see, once again, we're just talking about a val- bad and good is a value, right? Is it bad? Is it good? What how do we how do we say bad? What are we even basing that on? Well, we're basing it on that that fear of death, essentially, that when we die, we're going to cease to exist stuck in the dark night of the soul. Well, that's not a reason to I mean, uh, it, it is a reason, but it's only a reason in the same sense, like to say, I don't like vanilla ice cream. I don't choose vanilla ice cream because I don't like vanilla ice cream. That's not an objective reason to to uh, reject uh, vanilla ice cream. It's just your personal preference. To say you get stuck in the dark night of the soul, bad as it gets. Once again, a value system can't get out. Miserable, I'm miserable. He's he's describing nihilism. The reasons to reject nihilism in very very subjective terms. And so the point the point here is that even in trying to create an argument for nihilism if this comes up again in the conversations it would be very interesting to say okay but what are your objective reasons for rejecting nihilism because none of the reasons you gave me like if we if we all agree that nihilism is the most reasonable thing but i, I almost, i'm rejecting it for preferential reasons i'm rejecting it for subjective reasons that doesn't actually tell me why nihilism is wrong and for, for the record i don't is is nihilism the, the most the most reasonable? I mean, it depends on what definition you're using of nihilism, right? It's possible that nihilism is just merely nothing matters, whatever. I, I don't really believe that because I think that we do have values whether or not there are these eternal objective values. I still prefer staying alive. I, uh, evolutionarily, I must, I, I, pr- I prefer that. And so there are still lots and lots of things where I can create a value system that help in- increase my chances of staying alive versus getting killed. Does it, does any of that matter after I die? Eh, maybe not. And maybe that's what we mean by nihilism, but, but my preference, my desire for it to be otherwise, isn't the reason why nihilism is wrong.
0: Yeah. Two thoughts about the conversation with Jacob that came up for me kind of in this conversation with you. One is that even if whether God is real or not, even if a agreement collective agreement in our society that God is real and that him being not real leads people to nihilism, which again is all debatable anyway, but even if we start with that assumption such doesn't make God true. Just because the human experience without a supreme being in our minds leads us to more uh, negative choices about our well-being or others' well-being doesn't necessitate that God is real. In other words, what Jacob's saying there is that it's better that we all pretend. Whether God is real or not, it's better that we all pretend he is. The other thing too is that Ask yourself in this world that we live in where one person in a geographic location on this planet can push a button and end all life as we know it. Are we safer in closed systems where we ascribe a moral law to a supreme being and such cannot be questioned? Or are we safer in open loop systems where, um, where a bad apple is threatening the health and well-being of the entire planet, and we all have the ability to go, that's not okay. Stop that now. And what I would, what I'm sensing is, we are entering a world. It, it became, it became this way the moment that someone could cause harm to the entire planet from one spot on the earth. We are entering a world, and we're in it already. By the way, we've been in it for a decade or two maybe more, 30 years. But we're entering a world where tribalism is going to be the death of us if we don't evolve to something world-centric. And world-centric is never going to work when one particular system says, I'm the only right choice, you have to choose me. And hence my suggestion to Jacob is that whether God is real or not, we actually might be safer and better off if we all pretend he isn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Anything else, my friend?
1: Uh, I think that essentially covers my point. I guess just if we're just kind of just wrap it up, the the, the basic idea is uh, I am a hundred percent in agreement that you can't start in the house in order to explain the foundation of the house. You can't you can't say that the, whatever was the parts of the house that I'm that are under debate can't be the reason or the basis for why that is, and so so we have to 100% agree. That when Jacob is when Jacob is trying to turn this into kind of a more philosophical question, a more philosophical debate, I'm a hundred percent behind that because I think that you need those philosophical legs. You need to be able to support what you're arguing, whether you're talking about values or whether you can talk. are talking about I can trust my eyes or whatever the case might be. Totally agree. I totally disagree when we're talking that, that kind of the Carrie Mullstein idea. And Jacob says this multiple times in his argument that you must start essentially with he doesn't say exactly this but you must start with the conclusion in order to arrive at the conclusion you must start with a belief in god to arrive at a belief in god you must start with atheism to arrive at atheism that's just simply not true you can your foundation can be as simple as the rules that i laid down right here to say using these rules that that don't assume the matrix is real or not real they don't assume god is real or not real but we can come to what is likely what is what is probably the truth what is probably the basis for our uh, value system and they, they will answer that we answer through that we essentially answer the question of where do you get your values from we learned that the question itself is based on a value and the answer is it's probably from evolution and it's probably unlikely to change we can work together to come up with a system that that accomplishes that our shared values
0: yeah, and to demonstrate that point, and again, I don't mean this in a rude way, I, just that Jacob admitting that he'd never been through a faith crisis, right? That there's a certain ignorance there, which is that when I went when I went into deconstructing Jesus, not with the intent to deconstruct Jesus, I went into the the act of doing that, fully believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And when I read books like Reza Aslan's Zealot or Bart Ehrman, I went in as a believer but using the tools that you just explained and I ended up with what I my brain told me was the most rational answer I no longer allowed extra inferences I didn't I didn't go looking for apologetics to make it work I instead said hey here's the data here's where the experts in this field agree and it would require me to make more allowances conjecture inferences to continue to hold on to Jesus as the literal Messiah of the world, who reanimated after three days, and these gospel authors are telling a coherent story about him. That I wasn't—I did—I I wasn't doing it the way Jacob was explaining. I'm doing it the way you're explaining, like that's the way the world works if we're being rational,
1: critically thinking human beings. Yeah, and and just on that point, the reality is the, those rules that I've laid down. You, you can't operate in the world without essentially following those rules. Like like the very the very notion of uh, where do you go to buy your groceries at the grocery store, the very fact that you go back to the same place where you saw the grocery store last time, assuming that it's going to be there, you can't know with absolute objective certainty that this, that the, I mean, not, not even just laying aside the whole matrix stuff. Uh, you, they they could have just destroyed the building at night, you know, overnight or since the last time you went to the grocery store. It may not be there, but the point is you don't drive to the, the, the block over and whatever. You you go to where it's reasonable, where you're using the least amount of inference and making the decision based on that. That's the, that's how we must operate in the world is by saying, okay, based on the information that I have, what's the what's the most likely, what's the least inferential place to drive to in order to find the grocery store. If you were to if you were to follow a different set of rules, you couldn't operate in in the world. You couldn't operate against the world. And so so Every, whether you want to or not, you follow these rules. You only you only break these, people only break these rules when they have a, have a kind of a pet belief that they wish to be true. And then all of a sudden they go, oh, well, I'm going to use a different set of rules. Okay, but then you're the one changing, you're the one creating your own set of rules. Okay, then defend that other set of rules in your own house, in, you know, without referring to your own house. The problem is when Jacob is saying, this is true of any uh, when they say, well, you have to start with the, uh, with God in order to conclude God, well, then you just broke your own rule that you have to start with the foundation with the non, the non-belief in order to arrive at the house.
0: Yeah. The other side of that too, to what I was saying earlier that we're all better off if we pretend there is no God, it's because if God is real and he's out there and he wishes that we would all understand him clearly, but even the most uh, ardent theist recognizes that the voices inside their religious tribe are hit or miss. And there's the extra layer that those voices make themselves less question, less able to be questioned. than if, then if they say, Hey, I don't have any more authority than you have, like, let's hear, let's hear the best of ideas. Instead it's, I know what you couldn't possibly know. And hence it becomes unquestionable and in today's modern world, if we all want to survive another thousand years, we're going to have to come up with a way in which bad ideas can be easily questioned and pushed back on and not not place those ideas in insulated systems where, where people have to go along with the idea and can't exactly push back against it, at least not, uh, not uh, easily. Because we'll end up with, um, we're going to sooner or later end up with a bad apple who causes a lot of harm to this planet. Yeah, the best of ideas need to surface to the top. Anything else, my friend?
1: I I think that basically covers it, unless you got something else.
0: No, I thought that was a beautiful discussion. We stayed pretty much within the two hours, and uh, uh, I hope that folks uh, benefit from this. So, uh, folks, Mormon Discussion Podcast, please uh, thank you, Spencer, for your time. Uh folks to help keep kind of these things going, please go to Mormon Discussions with an S on the end.org, org. Click the donate button, send a few bucks. Uh, we would deeply appreciate it. Uh, we're going to continue pushing back. By the way, folks, uh, I'll be in Salt Lake City May 30th uh for a presentation, QA uh with John DeLynn up in Alpine, Utah. Uh folks, you can uh you should have seen, I, I don't want to pull it up right now, but you should have seen the link for that. Uh, folks, if you have any desire to want to go to that, please reach out to me. I'll get you the link if you don't have access to it. And, and then also Mormonism live tomorrow night will be a ton of fun. You saw radio free Mormon in the comments. Uh, I blew his mind this week about what we're going to present tomorrow night. And uh, we're both excited to share the information with you. So we hope you'll turn in there. Uh, Spencer, I always appreciate your rational thinking and your logic uh, these systems are always trying to put themselves into a a, a bubble that they're not allowed to be bothered. They, they're not allowed to be criticized, not allowed to have you exactly poke holes at it. And uh, I think we are all better off poking holes at bad ideas. So thank you for being a critical thinker, my friend.
1: Amen. And thanks hey.
0: for having me on. Take it easy. Okay.